Hi, y'all. My name is Lauren, and I'll be reading our scripture tonight. So if you want to turn with me to Psalm 63, I'll give you a second, and it'll be up on the screen as well. All right, let's dive into God's word. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy." My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to see everybody tonight. Thanks for dealing with uh, the pizza. We appreciate that. Um, It is fun that we get to do dinner, and uh, that's a tradition that goes back to when I think there were literally eight people on a Tuesday night Bible study a few years ago. And so it's, uh, it's kind of fun that we still do that. People have like said we should take that away. Those people aren't here anymore. So my name is Thomas Nelson. If we haven't met, I'm the young adult pastor here at Christ Covenant. It's so great to see you tonight. We are in a very unique series. In a couple of more weeks, we're going to be back in the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the parables of Jesus, and then we're going to start on the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm very excited about. Um, I've been wanting to teach the Sermon on the Mount for a while now, and so it's I've had some really good time to, to look and study and think. Tonight, we're answering questions. We answered them last week. We're answering them tonight. We're answering them next week. We're going to try to answer all of your questions. Some are repeats. Some are in the same category. So if you don't hear your exact question, but you see it's in that category, just know we read your question, and it's a part of what we're talking about. If I had to put tonight as a theme, I would call it the heart of God and the church. That's the big questions we're wrestling with tonight, the heart of God and the church. I was looking through the questions just a little while ago, and there was a new one that popped up. And it, it did, this is just a bonus. It's not in my notes. And, uh, and I just want to address it real quick because I think it's probably helpful for a lot of people. The question is, for people that uh, may find that you're, and the word backsliding was in there, you might be backsliding, which means you were walking towards the Lord and now you're not walking towards the Lord. What would you recommend? And uh, I would recommend one thing. I would recommend to get the secrets out. So often when you start to slip away from the Lord, you know some things happening that no one else does. And Christianity was never meant to be done in isolation. Following Christ was always meant to be done in community. And so you need to have confession to the Lord, 1 John 1, 9, and you also need to have confession to some other folks, James chapter 5. And so my encouragement would be get the secrets out. Tell the Lord what's going on and tell some other people what's going on, and then y'all come up with a plan and move forward. All right, let's pray. Lord, would you speak through your word tonight? This, uh, these six questions that we're going to look at, would you give me wisdom? Would you connect our hearts to your truth and let us hear your truth? Anything that I say, Lord, that is not of you, would that just go in one ear and out the other? May we hear from you tonight, Lord, and may you move our hearts closer to you. May you give us freedom where we need freedom. And Lord, would you stoke a fire for the love of your church as well? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So question number one tonight, church leadership, what we've learned from history, trying to honor Jesus by honoring the bride. It's a conglomeration of questions. And so I thought we would just start off. And by the way, I am looking at my notes more in this series than I normally would because I wanna make sure we get through as much as we can get through. So what is the church? You'll see up on the screen. The church, the Christian church, is not a building. It's a body of believers united in Christ. Its role is to worship God, nurture and edify, reach out to a suffering world with the saving message of the gospel as well as the practical compassion and mercy exemplified in Christ. To this end, ecclesiology is not some ivory tower, academic discipline removed from the reality of daily life. Instead, Learning more about the church helps us make a real difference in the world, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, the, the, the Bible talks about how the church is actually three different things. 
One, if you are a Christian, you are a little church. Why? Because you go back to the Old Testament. Where did the Spirit of God dwell? The Spirit of God dwelled first in the tabernacle, and then the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple. And so now you are a living temple, and the Holy Spirit indwells you. Uh, And then, when you all get together, when we get together, we are the body, the church together, multiple uh, multiple members making up one body. And so we all have different gifts and things that we can, we can contribute to that body. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He, he says some people are like an arm or an eye or a foot. And so you put us all together and we have the bot, we represent the body of Christ and our other brothers and sisters who are all over the world. That is the, the word Catholic means universal. That is the Catholic, the universal, the whole church. And so 1 Corinthians 12 says, that's the church. Uh, It says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So there's little church, you. There's bigger church, us. And then there's the church all over the world. And so you and I, we are a part of this church. And I think a big question when it comes to church is how should church operate? And so the question is, should church be governed or shepherded? And that's a big difference. You, some of you come from a background where there was church, a lot of church governance and a lot of, a lot of leadership and hierarchy, and you were told what to do. Uh, and that doesn't mean you weren't shepherded, but that term governance was used more. We have a church governance here, but I believe the Bible points out that the church of Jesus Christ should first and foremost be shepherded. And so let's look on the handy-dandy iPad here. This is John chapter 21. This is when Peter was being reinstated by Jesus back into ministry after he had denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, before Jesus went to the cross. Now Jesus is risen. He finds Peter and they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and they have this dialogue. And so what happens in this dialogue? When they finish breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says to him, this is interesting. He says, feed my lambs. And then he says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, this is interesting. Peter's the rock on which the church was going to be built. Matthew chapter 16. So he denies Jesus three times to walk away from having his call fulfilled as the first leader of the church, the starter. So three times, Jesus calls him back into that position of the pastor who's going to preach Pentecost. And how does he call him? Remember, he calls Joshua, be strong and courageous, do all that I've commanded you. And he says that multiple times to Joshua when Joshua is called by God through Moses to be the leader of the Israelites. But Peter, when called to be the shepherd of the Christian church, is told three times, to basically be a really good shepherd. And here's, here's what it means. The word feed means to nourish. The word tend means to protect. And then the word feed again is to nourish. And how do you nourish? You nourish with the word. How do you protect? You keep out wolves And, good, I don't have room to write disease. Perfect. And then, again, you nourish with the word. This is what a good church should be doing. And Christ's covenant does not have the corner on the market of good churches. We have many things to learn and many ways to grow. There are plenty of good churches around, but there are plenty of not good churches. And you need to ask yourself the question when you decide to be a part of a church, do I see them wanting to nourish me with the word? Do I see them wanting to protect me from the wolves? And do I see them wanting 
to protect me from disease or escape from out of the fence where the wolves are on the outside of the fence? What, what do I see? How do I see them protecting me? And do I see them again nourishing us with the word? Second uh, <clears throat> Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so when a church tries to control behavior, things typically go bad. When a church tries to draw people to Jesus through the scriptures, things tend to go pretty well. And so you're looking for a church that's not trying to control you, but you are looking for a church that's trying to instruct you and lead you and shepherd you in the word of God. Because the word of God has everything we need. So practically here at Christ's Covenant, what happens is you become a member, and once you become a member, you get assigned an elder. I am an elder here. Uh, Greg is an elder. There may be a couple of other elders over here. Um, Greg's the handsome guy with the, with the shiny head and the beautiful beard and the tattoos. Um, Greg is also an elder, and sometimes we have some other elders sneak in, but you get assigned an elder. That elder is not your best friend. That elder is not like your fishing buddy. Those things may happen unless you hate fishing. Um, they're not like your like, new mentor. That elder is there so that when something happens in your life, you have a go-to that knows the heart of the church that they can help you take that next step in rekindling uh, a broken relationship. They can help you in taking that next step in walking with the Lord. They can help you back into, um, in, into the faith. The, the elders help shepherd. And so we don't have one shepherd. We don't have five shepherds. We've got 20 shepherds. And in a few months, we'll have 30 or 40 shepherds. We continue to add to that number. And so that's the way that it works here. And I would say, even last night in this room at 10 o'clock, we were finishing up, or 10.30, 10.30. It was long. We were finishing up an elders meeting, and all I was thinking about was how much work I still had to do on these questions. Um, and so I might have started working on them in here. Uh, but we were finishing up an elders meeting, and the elders have a balance of power, and I think that you see that in the Bible. Not one person makes all the decisions. I definitely got shot down on something last night, like annihilated. Um, and so... Like, that happens though, Jason, our lead pastor, he gets annihilated. Like, we have a balance of power, some checks and balances. And I think at the end of the day, what a healthy church should do is listed in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I'll just read you two of those verses, says this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. A healthy church is gonna help you understand you have a ministry. And we wanna raise you up and equip you so that you can do the work of ministry. No Christian is called to consume their whole lives and stay there. No Christian is called to stay drinking milk their whole lives, the Bible says, and so we're to grow up and eat real food. And so a healthy church is gonna challenge you to step into what is that ministry God is calling you to be a part of. If I were you, I would look for a few things from the people like me that talk and sing. I would look, do they have a, a, a semblance of godliness, which is a little bit subjective. Some ways that's, that are not subjective though, do they have visibility and knowability? If I hid out in a green room all day and then I just showed up to preach, I think you could ask a few questions. If I didn't hang out with any of you, if we didn't know each other some, and there's too many of you for me to hang out with everybody, but if, if you didn't know anything about me, I hope you would at least know somebody who does know something about me. Because you don't want just a talking head. We're a dime a dozen. There's so many good preachers out there, but it doesn't mean that there's a healthy church behind that. And I think you also need to know, do the, does the leadership have accountability? Who do they answer to? 
And in this room, there's 15 of you that I in particular answer to. Two, two are right here, this lovely couple about to get married. Um, but like, there's 15 folks on the young adult lead team. We meet once a month. They can tell me no. They can tell me yes. They can tell me let's talk about that some more. But I challenged them Sunday night when we met. I said, y'all are my number one stop of accountability in this immediate room. Outside of that, I have other elders and pastors. But is there accountability? So look, here's the deal. Jesus is the groom, and he loves us, the church, his bride. He cares for us and places people in this life who are called to specially love and care for his church. We would do well to listen to those people, but we would also do well to weigh their words against the scriptures and be fed and led to better know and serve Jesus. Okay, next question. What, are, what Old Testament laws are Christians supposed to follow and which ones do they ignore? Y'all ask, like, I just picked all the, Kate picked these questions. She picked all like the, the heavy blocks for tonight. Um, and so what Old Testament laws are Christians supposed to follow? Which ones do they ignore? Okay, there was a big debate in Acts chapter 15, the early Christians who were Gentiles, not Jewish. And the debate was how Jewish do they have to become before they can be saved? And so they said, look, salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Um, but there are some rules they need to follow in order to be accepted by the broader Jewish community who has also started to follow Christ. And so they came up with three or four little things. Like they said, don't eat, um, don't eat blood from animals. Don't eat animals that are killed wrong. Uh, avoid sexual immorality, and that'll be good. You can do those things, and that'll be good. Uh, and so people say all the time, they're like, I am under grace. I am free from the law. And what they mean is I'm free from the 613 commands in the Old Testament because everybody says that's the law, all 613 commands. But I would argue with you that you're actually not, as a Christian, free from all the laws of God. And so they then tip people typically quote, I don't know why, they especially quote this to me, Leviticus 19, 26 through 28. And they quote this saying, see, you don't do this. We don't have to follow the law. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Again, I don't know why I get quoted that. But... The, so here's the deal. The, the Old Testament priest would wear their garments when they would go in, and on the, on the fringe of the garments, they had, they had little tiny uh, pomegranates all around the garment. And they said that the reason they had pomegranates, which was a command of the Lord, was because if you cut open a pomegranate, it has 613 seeds. I've never successfully counted the pomegranate seeds. But they said it's the perfect fruit because it represents the commands of God, all 613 commands. And so, so then the question is, okay, if you're going to argue that we're totally free from the law, we don't have to follow anything, I would argue we do. As I mean, what else am I, 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 I like, every week I preach, like, something for you to do. Um, and I'm preaching it to myself, too. So I would argue we do have laws that we have to follow. But I think what we have to do is step back and see the big picture of the Bible. You see, there's this misconception in the Old Testament that if you followed all 613 laws, then you'd be saved. But in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the word of God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible shows that salvation has always been by faith. So why these 613 laws that were put in there? So let's take a step back, see what's actually happening in the meta-narrative of the Bible. The biblical story is one story revealing God's plan in the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation of humanity. Again, it's the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This is, this is one, one story told in these different movements, telling one thing. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you have, uh, you have creation, God's work. Then in Genesis 3, you have the fall. That's where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. And then also in Genesis 3, you see the beginning of the redemption 
that the Lord is going to bring. And that redemption plays out throughout the rest of the Bible. And so finally, once we see, uh, as the Bible unfolds, we see the people of God, Israel, they come onto the scene. We see prophecies of Messiah. We finally see the, the arrival of the Messiah, the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, the first, that which is the first fruits of the consummation when he rises from the dead. And then there's this promise for the ultimate consummation of all of God's people. Therefore, the laws that come into question happen with the advent of the people of God, the Israelites, and all 613 laws were meant to set them apart from all the other nations. So even if you read an Old Testament law and you think that's really aggressive, more than likely, the nations around them had other laws that were 10 times more barbaric. And so God is showing them As my people, holy, holy means set apart. As my people set apart, you will live and conduct yourselves differently. And those laws are are broken down into three categories. Those categories are the moral laws, like how, how, how you behave as a holy person following a holy God. That's the moral. The civil laws, what does it look like to be a citizen of the nation of Israel? And then the ceremonial worship laws. How do I worship God? How do I appropriately approach him? So when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus, and again, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount in the next few weeks, we'll start to see Jesus reteach some of these Old Testament laws. And when he reteaches some of these Old Testament laws, he doesn't say, I'm done with those forever. People often quote Matthew chapter five, where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, and I came to fulfill it. Uh, and they're like, he's done it, we don't have to do it. No, he's, he's showing us now what's called the law of Christ. And so in Christ, the ceremonial laws no longer apply. We approach God with boldness because of the victory of Christ. The civil laws, well, we're not... Jewish citizens in a theocracy, they no longer apply. What Jesus reteaches so often are these moral laws. And you know why? Because when we rightly follow the moral laws of God as followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we actually show the world what freedom looks like. And there's... uh, a great, a great verse, but before we get to that verse, I'll, I'll read you uh, a, a quick little quote, and it says this. What's the takeaway key here? As a child of God, if that is what you are, you honor the instructions of God in view of Christ. That includes the Ten Commandments. That includes all the ways that he retaught things in the Sermon on the Mount. Anything that fits under love God and love people. You follow those laws of God, those instructions as demonstrating this is a better way, the way it was supposed to be, and the way one day it will always be. And if you're like, well, show me a New Testament verse, just show me one. I'll show you, 1 John 5, 3. For this, look at this beautiful verse, for this is the love of God. What is the love of God? The love of God is, is that we keep his commandments. This is a New Testament verse. The love of God is that we keep his commandments. And what does it say? I love that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this. His commandments are not burdensome. Do you realize, let's just go to the Ten Commandments. You honor your parents, even as grown-ups, it's freeing. You, you don't covet what your friends have. I promise you, in the most practical way, it is as freeing as it gets. You start saying, man, I'm so pumped that you got that deal. I'm so pumped that you got that house. I'm so pumped that you, you got that car and, and that one. Can I have one? Like, I mean, like, like you know, I mean, like, there's, there's freedom in celebrating other people's successes and not coveting those. It is not burdensome. What is burdensome is going and committing adultery, paying the price for stealing something, getting caught in a lie. 
Those things are burdensome. And so it is the love of God that in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Christ, we keep the law of Christ and all the little nuances in it of ultimately loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and loving our neighbor as ourself. And by the way, that chapter that people pick on me on and like they quote as, as like a kind of this smoke screen they put out there, Leviticus 19, do you know how it starts? Leviticus 19.2 basically says, love the Lord your God because he is holy. And Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's beautiful to see Jesus saying, those things are still true and they're right and they're good. So don't worry about the civil laws. You're not a citizen of Israel in a theocracy. Don't worry about the ceremonial laws because the veil has been torn. But the other ones in there, they're actually good and healthy and whole when carried out in the power of Christ through the Spirit. Question three. This is the easiest one of the night. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Free will and predestination. Let's be clear. We're not going to answer this question fully in this lifetime. All right? let alone in the next seven minutes. I have a seminary degree. I took 92 hours of seminary classes. This one still gets me. I've heard people say that they get this, and y'all, that's a lie. Um, look, let me just ask you this uh, as, as we get going. Who in here, raise your hand high so everybody can see it. If you chose your height, who chose your skin tone? Who chose what year you were born? Who chose their parents, their biological parents? Who chose your intellect? Okay, so God is sovereign. He's in control. Who chose what slice of pizza you got out there? Who chose... What seat you were in? Well, maybe the person next to you. Who chose the last four or five things that you chose? You chose them. You are responsible. And that's exactly how the Bible reads. There is this tension all through the Bible that God is completely in control and that we are responsible for our choices. And that answer drives Westerners crazy, of which I am. We like it to be black and white, tell me what, yes, no. We don't like tension. But the Bible was written with a whole group of people that were totally fine with tension. It is definitely a both and. Uh, in Calvinism, and by the way, Calvinism, uh, Reformed theology, those terms get mixed around and thrown around, so I'm not even going to try to separate them. Whichever one you want to say that I'm talking about is fine with me. They're, they're going to basically mean the same thing for the rest of this. So in Calvinism, you're told that there's unconditional election. There's total depravity. There's unconditional election. Uh, there's limited atonement, there's irresistible grace, there's the perseverance of the saints. And most days I agree with all of those. But then I'll read a passage every once in a while and I'm like, that one makes me question. In the same book that I'll read a passage that I'm like, spot on, those are spot on. And you have to be okay with this tension that's found all throughout the Bible of God is completely in control. You are fearfully and wonderfully made exactly how he intended you to be. Born on the year and the day and to the parents and in the place that he wanted you to be. Given the brains and the looks and the muscles and all the things that he wanted you to have. And yet when you stand before him, as we all will, is appointed once unto, unto man to die and then to judgment, we will give an account for our responses. We'll give an account for our actions. So I was going to draw this for you. I won't draw it for you. Let's just pretend this is Calvinism over here. And over here on this side of the stage is Arminianism or free will or whatever you want to call it, choices. 
Okay, so we have the two spectrums. I grew up in a church that taught eh, here. All right? Some of you grew up in angry churches that taught over here. All right? You grew up in those hyper-Calvin churches, hyper-Calvinism. And, you know, if you're like truly a hyper-Calvinist, you're a puppet on a string. You're a determinist. God has decided everything that's going to happen, and you really don't have any choices. You're just a puppet on a string. I don't see that in the Bible. However, if you grew up way over here, way over here, I haven't gotten my steps in for the day. If you grew up way over here, you can pick and choose whatever you want, including picking Jesus and rejecting Jesus. Well, that's not true either because Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand, those that are mine in John 10. And so this isn't true either. So there is somewhere on this scale, the heart of God. And when we ask this question, explain sovereignty of God and free will, what you're asking is to plumb the depths of the Lord. And we will never fully be able to plumb the depths of the Lord. There's, there's so many incredible verses that exemplify this, but one of them is Romans eleven thirty three, and it says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me read you uh, a quote that uh, is, is from R.C. Sproul, and it says this. Scripture sets forth two guardrails here. On one hand, God works all things, all things, even the pizza you picked. He works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.15. On the other hand, God does not, in fact, and cannot do evil. So when you did that thing, that was evil, he didn't do that. We catch a glimpse of these two guardrails at once in several passages, most notably in Genesis 45, which is uh, the passage about Joseph, and then in Acts 2, which is um, the, the Sermon of Pentecost. In the former, Joseph recognizes that while the intention of his brothers in selling him into slavery was evil, God meant it for good so that many people could be saved during the famine. We read in the same breath in Acts 2.23 that lawless men are blamed for the crucifixion, and yet Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here, this is such a good line, these next two lines. The challenge is to affirm what Scripture teaches without venturing further. We know from Scripture that both are true, but not how. Folks, there is great wisdom in that last line. There are some things that we know in Scripture, but we know not how. Welcome to the mystery of our faith. Let me give you one encouragement here. If you could figure God out, he wouldn't be God. There's so many great resources that I've got for you, but I, I do want to read you uh, one, one passage of scripture that I think is, is beautiful and did convert me to being much more reformed, much more Calvinistic than I used to be. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When I was young, I used to think that this was a picture of salvation. This, this is Jesus, right? This is me. And I used to think that Jesus was throwing me a life preserver because I was drowning, and then I would reach out and I would grab the life preserver and I would put it on and he would pull me to shore. That would be me responding in faith. 
But actually, what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 is very different. What we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, those are waves. Those are not good waves. This is going to be a little graphic. (laughs) What we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 is that I'm dead in my sin and trespasses. I don't get to claim grabbing on to that life preserver. In fact, I can't grab onto a life preserver. I wouldn't even need a life preserver because I'm dead in my sin and trespasses. But God being rich in mercy, by his grace, saved me and brought me from death to life. And at the same time, there's responsibility on my part for what I do with this. And at the same time, I had no role in this. And that is the tension that we live with. And so we know some things from Scripture, but some things we know not how. All right, let me just say this to you. So what do I believe? I believe the Bible teaches both. That God is completely in control and that humanity is given a will and is responsible for our choices. I think the emphasis, though, is this. The, the emphasis of the Bible is not who God doesn't save. The emphasis in the Bible is his plan to save. And I've included in my notes that I'll show you a QR code for at the end of the night, all kinds of resources about does God predestine some people to hell and all those kinds of questions that you and only a few of your Christian friends care about. Like, I mean, I guess other people care. That was a little, that was a little rude. I apologize. Like, that's just, that's part of the reason I wasn't a Calvinist or a, free, or, or a, a reform person for so long is because so many reform, reform people were just rude. Um, they were just arrogant. And I was like, well, if that's what it means, I don't want to be that. But as I studied the scriptures, I started to see the sovereignty of God plays a huge role. But also as I studied the scriptures, I see in multiple places that God wishes that none would perish. There's four verses you'll find in my notes if you get those at the end of the night where I've listed that God says he wishes that none would perish. The heart of God is into saving people. That is the narrative of the scriptures. How it all plays out, I think we'll be discerning until we wash up on the shores of heaven and we see the Lord clearly. I hope you're okay with the tension because it's, a tense answer. Next, okay, what about people who never hear the gospel? I'm telling you, all the heavy rocks tonight. This is perfect. So if you ask that question, you also have to ask, like, so are people somehow saved? Could they be saved apart from knowing Jesus? If so, wouldn't sharing the gospel with those people actually be more dangerous than not, since it would make them accountable? And does that mean that God sends innocent people to hell? Well, first of all, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So let's just go ahead and get rid of the idea there's innocent people. Uh, Second of all, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we know that salvation comes through Jesus. Third, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what we see is that God has revealed himself through nature, general revelation. God is more merciful than we can understand. God is immutable and he does not change. No one comes to God but through the Son. That's a really important verse when you ask this question. God punishes the unrepentant, unregenerate, sinful person, but God saves those who call on him. Also, and I'm just going to say this blanket statement, and I mean it, God saves those who are intellectually unable to call on him. And I would put that with baby and folks that have intellectual handicaps, and there's multiple verses, and again, in my notes, you'll see some references to that. So, let's go back to the original question. Does God send people to hell who have never heard of Jesus? God never punishes people for rejecting Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus. This is R.C. Sproul, by the way. When I say that, people breathe a sigh of relief and they say, well, then we better not tell anybody about Jesus because somebody might reject him. Then they're really in deep trouble. But again, there are other reasons to go to hell. 
To reject God the Father is a very serious thing, and no one will be able to say on the last day, I didn't know you existed, because God has revealed himself plainly. Now, the Bible makes it clear that people desperately need Christ, and God may grant his mercy unilaterally at some point, but I don't have any reason to have much hope in that. I think we have to pay serious attention to the passionate command of Jesus to go to the whole world, to every living creature, and tell them of Jesus. The Lord is more merciful and compassionate than we can understand. The most quoted verse in the Bible is Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Most quoted verse in the Bible. Sometimes he miraculously reveals himself to people. I've heard of, of Muslims that have visions of Jesus and then a vision of a house to go to where someone has an injil, a Bible, and they'll go and they'll find this person and they'll come to Christ without anyone telling them about Christ other than Jesus himself visiting them. So God has definitely saved some people that otherwise had not heard about him if he had not revealed himself to them himself. And that is miraculous. But maybe the most miraculous thing is God sending us, his redeemed ones, damaged goods, to bear the gift of salvation to everyone we encounter. And then for someone to come to Christ through one of us. Folks, that's a miracle. And you and I should feel a burden if you are a Christian. That no one comes to the Father but through Christ. Now God does have the mercy that's beyond ours. He saves some people we'll never interact with, but that is not how the Bible is laid out. The, the weight is on us to go and share. Okay, last two questions, and we're out of time, but I'm going to finish it because they're, they're tied together. So how do I forgive somebody and not bring up their past? Um, you know, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, I'll just go ahead and show you on the iPad. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You want to repeat it, don't you? Um, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let me tell you two practical things about forgiveness. Forgiveness for a Christian is mandatory, but trust is earned. If you don't hear me say anything else tonight, you need to know this. If you are a Christian, forgiveness for you to extend to anyone and everyone, period, is mandatory. But trust is earned. So why is forgiveness mandatory for a Christian? Well, part of being brought from death to life in Christ is the realization that you actually aren't God and that he actually is. And so when you or I then withhold forgiveness for someone, what I have just done is probably committed one of the most egregious sins there is, and that is the sin of blasphemy. Because what I have said is, God does not know how to handle this situation or this person, and I guess I do. You have just switched seats with the Lord. And so when you have that bitterness, that, un, uh, that withheld forgiveness that Christians are supposed to offer, you have just said, you don't know what you're doing, I'll be in charge. That's who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. This morning, I was looking at Instagram when I, I should have been writing, but I was looking at Instagram. <clears throat> I should have been reading my Bible if you really want to know the confession. Like I looked at it. You don't have to hear all that. Anyway, I did end up reading my Bible, but I did look at this. 
Maybe I looked at this one after. Anyway, okay, this lady pops up and she, and you know how I like to do the captions below the person? Like the sound was off, but the captions were going and it caught my attention. And so what I, what I saw the caption, it said, if you continue to let your thoughts dictate how you feel about a person, you will never find healing. And I was like, sister, tell me more. And I listened to the whole thing and I realized like, oh, this girl's like a strong believer. And she's talking about forgiveness. And that's exactly what we do. We let our, our thoughts, our thoughts, remember, we're still being like sanctified. We let our thoughts, not the Lord's, dictate how I feel about someone. And it's no wonder I don't have whole healing in my life. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, you see something very interesting. You see the, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us our daily bread. And we're just like rolling in this prayer, ready to go play the football game. And then all of a sudden we, we see this, and this is like very convicting. So we'll do this fast and then I'll get off the iPad. Um, it says, forgive us our debts. That's a great prayer. Lord, forgive me for all the things I've done. And then Jesus, sneaky, very sneaky, adds in, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That was not fair. He should not have added that in. And then he finishes the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then he keeps talking. Do you realize he doesn't talk about your kingdom come, your will be done? He doesn't talk about our daily bread. He doesn't talk about all these other things. When he finishes the Lord's prayer, he keeps talking about this. And he says, if, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So if you forgive, he'll forgive you. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Lord views us being instruments of peace so strongly that he will withhold his fellowship. This is not a salvific passage. Once you're a child of God, you're a child of God. He will withhold his fellowship from you as you withhold it from others. This is a strong word. So if you're wondering why you can't seem to like get out of the thing you're in, you can't seem to have joy and the wholeness and I would almost guarantee nine out of 10 times, there's somebody you're mad at that you need to let them go. You need to forgive as you've been forgiven. Romans 12, 19 through 21, this ought to be your anthem. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It's not like... Not feed them poisonous food or poison drink. Like, it's like actually help them. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Instagram reel that I was watching, I, I figured out who the person was, and I went to their website or to their, to their page, and then I went to, to this lady's husband page because it was so fascinating because you know what? She was in pornography for seven years. And not only was she in pornography for seven years, she was prostituted out for part of that time. And not only was she prostituted out for part of that time, she was given drugs to kind of keep her in the state that she was in. She ended up becoming suicidal. And then one day Jesus met her and he called her daughter and he forgave her and he saved her. That's the lady telling people they gotta forgive if they want healing. Now, you may have a story that compares with that, but I don't. And if that lady can tell us that in Christ, there is freedom and letting people go and her husband sitting beside her, not bringing up her past, but loving her as she is a child of God, redeemed and made whole. There was freedom in just watching their story. 
You gotta let that person go and forgive them. You gotta beg God for you to claim the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit in you to release them. And you have the power in you if you have the Holy Spirit. You just may need some help and it may take some time. So this ties in with how I'll land the plane tonight, and that is some folks have written about church hurt. That's why I started off with church leadership. I was 18 years old when I saw my pastor, my youth pastor, driving around with his secretary only to find out that they were having an affair. I saw a man get fired when I was in church for mishandling um, church funds. I've, uh, I've been yelled at with people with, with blood vessels coming out of a dude's neck that I was a fundamentalist Bible thumper in front of two services, one as it left, the other as it was coming in, only to be told the next day not to have a conversation with him because it might upset him and he's one of our biggest givers. I've had like lots of bad things happen at church. Church is not a perfect place. But Jesus loves his church, y'all. Warts and all, he loves it. This might be the best place to start extending some grace and forgiveness to people. One of my good friends was abused by a man when he was a kid in church. And by the grace of God, he has let that go. And he's now serving as a deacon and he's married and has two little kids and he's just an amazing guy. We started tonight with Lauren reading Psalm 63. Heather and I, when we got married, we had a girl sing that at our wedding. It was so good. And the words to the song taken from Psalm 63 say this. O God, you are my God, and I earnestly seek you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no stream, you extend your gracious hand and give life to me. I've seen you in your temple, and I've beheld your glory. Your love is better than all around me. I will praise you all my days as long as I can sing. In your name, I will lift my hands and worship thee. David wrote that psalm when Saul was chasing him. Saul was God's leader for the people. In a sense, it's the ultimate church hurt. And David cried out and said, I don't need vengeance on Saul. I need the Lord. And in him is freedom. So maybe tonight, if you don't hear anything else, Check your heart. Is the freedom of Christ in there or is the root of bitterness growing? Because they don't exist side by side. It's time to deal with that unforgiveness. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, by the love of God. Father, would you move in our hearts? Lord, would you give us freedom? Would you give us grace? Lord, you have done so much for us, and I thank you that you love your church. Would you help your church to love you back by loving each other, extending grace and freedom? We lift all this up in Jesus' name, Lord.